In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Andy McDowell, the star of films including Sex, Lies, and Videotape, Groundhog Day, Shortcuts, and Four Weddings and a Funeral, discusses her career and latest role in Russell Harbaugh's contemporary domestic drama, Love After Love, with Real Pieces moderator Annette Insor. The conversation was recorded on March 28, 2018, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Welcome to Andy McDowell. I'm going to start with a few questions about the film we've just watched, Love After Love, and then some questions about the very rich career that we got a glimpse of in the clips, and we will take a few audience questions before we're finished. Um, this is a first feature for Russ Harbaugh. Previously, he had directed a short film called Rolling on the Floor Laughing, which was a, an embryonic version of the film that you just saw. It was his thesis film at Columbia when he graduated in 2011. So my question is, what made you trust this first-time filmmaker with material that is obviously so complicated? And really, you know, what made you decide to play Suzanne, not the easiest part you've ever done? Um, well, I've had really good luck with, with uh, first-time directors because uh, Steven Soderbergh was, that was his first feature film. Sex, um, and video. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So I've never really questioned that since then. I've take, I take those kinds of chances because you, you just don't know. Um, if, if the script is great. Because the, really the most important part when you make a movie is the script. It's really hard to make a good movie without a good script. You can have great actors, you can hire an amazing director, unless they change the script, it's, it's not going to be good unless the script is good. And this was an amazing script. It was a beautiful script. And I had never, I don't, you know, I can't, you don't find these kind of characters for mature, mature women. It's really hard to find roles at my age anyway. And, um, and especially to find someone this complex and interesting and so many layers and, you, you know, uh, with the opportunity to, to start in a place that where she is, a, you know, a vibrant, sexual, um, artistic, uh, incredibly comfortable in her skin, um, strong woman to a woman that's, you know, she goes through this phase where she's the caretaker, immensely um, intense care, caretaker, to being completely devastated and um, lost. Um, and then, you know, you see her acting out, act, she acts in very peculiar ways, like you do in that situation of sleeping with her coworker, who, I guess, you know, what I feel is that the need to be touched, the loneliness that you feel, just the hope, the hope that maybe him holding me would make me feel better. But then you see it, she just doesn't, you know, how there's almost a sense of shame that's there. Just so many, I mean, I could just keep going. So much to do with this particular person and, I, and the relationship with her sons. Now there's a whole, that whole layering you know, he talked, Russ talked earlier today um, about writing the script, because it all goes back to the script, and how they were discovering, as they wrote it, 
the opportunity for layers, for so much layering. And I saw that when, when I read the script. It was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. I can't believe I'm going to get to do this. Because you referenced the particular scene of Suzanne obviously having gone to bed, I'm, I'm using my words very carefully, I don't know whether the script originally had and whether you originally shot a sexual moment, an erotic encounter between the colleague and Suzanne, because for me, there was something quite abrupt in going from them leaving the uh, game, uh -huh. and suddenly she's getting up from the bed. This is for me an example of the style of this film, which can be frustrating for the viewer, and I don't know to what extent it might have been frustrating for the actors, because we get sometimes the moment before something or the, the moment after, but not the actual dramatic uh, or certainly romantic mm -hmm. moment. Was there, did you shoot anything? No, no. there wasn't. We didn't shoot anything okay. there. There are other scenes that are not in and not in there that we did shoot, but not that particular, not that. And I felt like the answer that I gave him, because we can talk, and I say, I don't know what to say, and then I pause and then I say, I feel like I'm having an affair. I think that answers it, we had sex. Yes. Yeah, we had sex, because I feel like I'm having an affair. And it probably did not end up feeling it obviously did not end up feeling comfortable for me. And I think women will really understand this. I don't know how many men feel like this, but I think women quite often make the mistake of having sex and feel this huge, huge void um, afterwards that you almost feel lonelier. And I think that's how it, what it was for her. It was not satisfying. It probably, it made her feel even more lonely. And you know, leaving the coat on and just wanting to hide herself, and it didn't—it just didn't feel right for her. So, but it felt like so many scenes in this film authentic. Um, <clears throat> This—the director is clearly not interested in making a Hollywood movie where you go, "Oh, isn't that nice?" and "Oh, they're going to get together." Nothing of that. Mm -hmm. If anything, we get the sense that Suzanne is sort of trying on things. She's improvising. She's trying this, it's not going to work, so she'll try something else. But any other director, I suspect, would have shown us how Suzanne meets Michael. We have no idea how the mm -hmm. two of them even came together. So I realize I'm coming into something that started without me. You know, mm -hmm. it, it is a film that closes the door often on my efforts to enter. But I think that's more interesting than the spoon-fed kinds of movies that we're used to where we see, oh, now they meet, now they kiss, now they're gonna have sex, now the sons are gonna act up. I mean, that would be one kind of film. Mm -hmm. Russ Harbaugh seems to be up to something else. Mm -hmm. Did you have a lot of improvisation though? Because the naturalness mm -hmm. with which you express some of the awkwardness, the frustration, that struck me as not just script or great acting, but something that combined the two? Um, it was the process that he, that he, the way Russ works that helped us to be so real and for everything to feel, it felt, it felt real as it was happening. 
Um, I mean, a lot of scenes I did and I could not break it apart for you. What, what happens a lot of times when you're acting is you memorize lines and you do it and then you can kind of go back in your head and go over what you just did and clock whether you're satisfied or not. You can go, you know, you'll, you'll say, no, I think I need to do this, I need to do that. There was none of that in this process I, because we would start quite often in a scene and he would have us improv the scene. It, we did this all the time. We would improv the scene and then go into the dialogue. Somebody would know how to catch it, how to make it work, get into the dialogue, do the dialogue, and then it would be open-ended. So he could stop when he wanted to stop. And then he could use whatever he wanted to use. What ended up in the movie, the majority, is the dialogue. But what happened by doing that is it feels so, it feels very natural. It's nothing, not like you're delivering lines. It's a very natural feeling to it. And the other thing that he did, that Russell did, was he gave us this list of movies to watch. I'm sure you know about this. I heard a little okay. about this, yeah. And, um, and that was so much fun. I, when I was in my 20s, I was taking a lot of acting classes, and I watched a lot of these movies, and they were the kinds of films that appealed to me. Um, a lot, Bergman, I loved Liv Ullman, I loved her, um, Cassavetes, um, and it, I want to be sure I say it right, Maurice Piala. Piala, thank you. Um, and then The Godfather and, uh, you know, a whole a really long list. So we watched this list and of I'm movies. And I'm going to guess some Woody Allen, too. Some Woody Allen. And um, he loved that feeling of, um, it's a very European feeling. And he loved the feeling of the, through the doors and, and as if you're watching these people and the overlapping and the big dinners and the life that you feel, that very much appealed to him. And I'm trying to remember, I should have asked him today because I saw him today, but um, what exactly it was, the forms of the bodies, you see it repeated, um, are the naked bodies that, I can't remember if he showed us, if that was from a painting or from a film. Do you know the answer to that? Because I'm trying I, to remember, I know. Off the top of my head, there's no particular <sighs> movie where I've seen the intertwined bodies on the bed, where you, they're clearly naked, but not mm -hmm. titillating. I mean, you're not supposed to get yeah. excited. You're supposed to see, okay, yes. two bodies have two become human bodies. one. It's humanness. It's right. the human body. It's the human body. They could have been from paintings, because I just remember him showing. He said, are you going to be comfortable with that? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be fine with that. You know, I don't have a problem with that at all, because... It, um, everybody's making a big deal out of the fact that this is my first nude scene, but it's really... That, I think, is just a fun thing to say, because the nudity in this, um, the nudity in, nudity in, in this, for me in particular, is not at all, it's not that kind of nudity. It's a, it's a you know, it shows the human condition as, as well for me as it does for my husband dying. I mean, that's the human condition. It's the body, yes. And my, I think my body is, it just, it represents loneliness. It represents... Um, humanity and need, the desire, it represents the des desire to love, um, to be with someone, to, you know, all of that. It's, it's a much deeper feeling than just, oh, she's, you know, she's sure. doing a new scene. It's so I, much, so much more. You've put it <clears throat> so articulately because 
One of the things that I love in the films of Cassavetes, I hope some of you have seen A Woman Under the Influence, which has one of the greatest performances ever with Jenna Rollins, um, or Husbands. He loved to depict the embarrassment, the silences and the awkwardnesses of the way ordinary people really do live, love, talk, and mess up all the time. You almost have the feeling watching his films, and I felt it a few times during Love After Love, that maybe I shouldn't be seeing something, that this glimpse is a little bit painful because these are lives that aren't prettified. Um, I have real trouble watching the death scene of the husband, and frankly, I have trouble watching some of the sexual interchanges of Nick and the various women mm -hmm. because they don't seem to be as much about love. Mm -hmm. They're about other things that are going on in Nick. Mm -hmm. And it's rare that a movie, I think, engages us on that level. Mm -hmm. And you seem to have really grasped it and, and gone with it completely. Mm -hmm. the, the improvisation where he, he gave you the chance, was it primarily during rehearsal or was it when you were on the set shooting? When we were shooting. Oh. When we were shooting. Yeah, we didn't really, our preparation was more of, um, mostly for Chris. I was just so prepared to do this role. I was really ready. I just wanted to shoot. Chris wanted to contemplate and think why he was doing things and talk about the character. So he would, they would sit and talk about the character and I would be dying just to go. And eventually I used that irritation and just let, you know, sat back and just let Chris have his way and sit there and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And I used it for my character to have deeper feelings in the scene. And it really, it really worked. It was worked. One time Chris yelled at me because in the scene upstairs in the bathroom, when I'm wiping the poop off of my husband's legs, um, I don't know, I kind of interrupted his train of thinking because he was doing that thing he does. <laughs> I wanted to go. I said something and he just barked at me and um, it hurt. And um, then later, we, you know, we did whatever we were doing and he apologized. But oh, we had done the scene again, and I actually cried in that scene. Like I lay, I laid up against the wall. It was so sad not to see it in the movie, but just tears were. I was like breathing, and just tears were flowing down my face. And I thought, well, that's what you get, you know. <laughs> Look at me. Look how good I am right now. Because you just pissed me. You hurt me. You pissed me off. You hurt my feelings. And here I am. So then he apologized. I said, don't worry, Chris. You just made me better. So a lot of that was kind of happening between us two. I mean, it wasn't ugly. I don't, want to, I don't want to confuse you. We got along just fine. It was intense, though, which is good. That's yeah. not unusual. It, it does happen. And I think Chris O'Dowd is really powerful in this film. I'm used to seeing him more in comic films. I adored him in The Sapphires, which is one of the great unsung films of the past 10 years, and of course in Bridesmaids. And um, here, he plays really dark. Mm -hmm. And the character of Nick is um, very hard for me to take. He's mm -hmm. passive aggressive from beginning to end. And even what you just described, you know, feels yeah. of a piece. Yeah, I think he was probably already kind of in it. He was carrying it a little bit with him, maybe, yeah. you know. But it was, I also found it fascinating, too, because 
the way I feel about it is once the, the father was the leader of the family, and once he dies, who becomes the leader? Because my, my son is an adult man, and I'm a woman. So I feel like that was also just like another layer within the story that you have to think about to, to grasp. But once he's gone, who's the, who's the head of the family? Mm. I thought about that too. I was like, yeah. They're, they're, they already had boundary issues because you see it before the father dies. The, the open and scene were very intimate with each other in a way that is not, not, not normal between a mother and a son. We're without boundaries. And we have this emotional attachment that is bigger than it should be. We could use a little therapy. Um, it's not sexual, but we're definitely, and it carries on. We're in each other's space uh, where we should not be. I'm in his business, and then he pays me back big time at the end for being in his business, for screwing with his head, which I do, you know. And, you know, I just, you know, all of that I just found super fascinating. Yeah. Well, this is a film in which the female characters are so much more mature and admirable than the younger male characters. Um, and, and there is, by the way, one shot where on the couch, mm -hmm. you can barely make out the faces, but it is Nick holding mm -hmm. Suzanne. Mm -hmm. And he holds a lot of women in this film. And in fact, there's even a slight, not physical resemblance, but because Rebecca, Juliet Ryland's character, also has long dark hair and also has the kind of mature, intelligent warmth mm -hmm. as Suzanne, you get the feeling that there is a kind of undertone. Not exactly, I wouldn't say incestuous, that's, you know, reductive. No, but I think that happens a lot in life. Pe you know, f children go and look for someone like their parent. That, I mean, it's, it, if you study therapy, it happens all the time. It just, it happens. It's like, it's something you're comfortable with as well and that you know. And he, I do think that he looked up to me. Otherwise, what I said he wouldn't have listened to. And what I did say to him would affect him. It did yeah. affect him. Look, when you tell him, when Suzanne says, Rebecca was a person of consequence. Yes. It drives him crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because, of course, you know, there now is. Now, I have, she has my approval, but the, the, other, the other woman, Dries Carey, Emily, does not have my, she, she does not have my approval. And from then on, he can't like her anymore. It totally affects him. It has a huge effect. It just diminishes that relationship yeah. completely. And then when he goes off for that uh, quick sexual night with your colleague. Yes. How you know, crazy was that? Another sense of, you know, kind of displacement or mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. what he can't do with his mother, he will do with someone either resembling or close to his mother. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it, it, there are a lot of layers in this film that one can sort of unpack afterwards mm -hmm. because while you're watching, it's... And I, I mean, I remember Russ Harbaugh at the Tribeca Film Festival last year talking about wanting to have in this film a sense of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And he even had this um, wonderful line about, can you make a movie that feels accidental and then the narrative sneaks in? So yeah, while we're watching the film, it just seems like these random moments, there isn't exactly a plot, there are events, mm -hmm. and then suddenly relationships become the foreground. And I was curious for an actor playing that, 
for example, music. We, I felt David Shire's score very strongly, the saxophone at the beginning, and then when you're walking alone in the street. Was that music already composed and you heard it during filming or did it come after? What happened was Russ sent the movie to him. Um, what's his name again? David Shire. David Shire, thank you. And um, just taking a chance because he admired his work so much and it was a dream that was like the top bar, the high hope. And, um, and he, he said, I, you know, David said, I'm sorry, I have a lot on my plate. I, I can't do this, but I will help. I'll pass you. I'll give you some good suggestions. But then he watched it. And he called Russ up and said, I've changed my mind. I watched the movie and I want to do this. So that was a great compliment, a huge compliment. And the music, I think, is just extremely powerful. I would listen to the music myself, just in my house, just to listen to the music. It's, I love the music in this. And while you were shooting, was there any other music? Was there a Tim track? For example, when you were walking in the street, mm -hmm. was there music playing or was it just you doing... No, it was just me walking, just me walking in the street. Now, whether Russ had something going on in his head or not, I don't know, but... <laughs> Knowing Russ, even superficially, I'm sure he had a lot going on in his <laughs> yeah, head. Yeah, probably. He thinks out every step. Mm -hmm. And the way the script was written, you know, he and Eric Mendelssohn, who had been his mentor, thesis advisor, they sat for months talking through the script, talking through the lookbook to get exactly what they wanted. And there was a really, despite the looseness of the narrative while we're watching, it was meticulously constructed. Mm -hmm. um, I did want us to compare the, what you've just done with this film a little bit with some of your earlier work. Um, you know, Sex, Lies, and Videotape back in 1989 was such a game changer for many of us because it was the first indie film that made a big crossover into the mainstream after it won the Palme d'Or at the 1989 Cannes Film Festival. And by the way, what I think I told you when I met you briefly last year in Tribeca, how I remember that year because Christoph Kieślowski, my favorite mm -hmm. director, I was his translator, I wrote a book about him. Mm -hmm. He was on the jury that year for the Cannes Film Festival and was therefore one of the people who voted the prize for He told me afterwards that he was so taken with your performance and especially your hands. <laughs> he was going on and on and on about Andy McDowell's beautiful long hands. And he was at that time preparing his movie, The Double Life of Veronique. And he actually thought of you, he told me this, he thought of you initially before he went for a French speaking actress. Um, I, I, you didn't know anything about I that. knew oh, because did. I had lunch with him. I was afraid of having to do, it was French and Polish. Polish. And he told me not to worry about it. I really regret not trying, but it terrified me, the idea to do the French and the Polish. But. It's scary. And Irene Jacob, who ended up playing Veronique, she studied Polish for six months. And she already spoke French, exactly. so she had an edge on me. That would have yes, been hard. Did. It would have been a slightly different film, but yeah. equally fascinating and haunting, I suspect. But I love his movies as well. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm showing the Decalogue every Thursday in my classes at Columbia as we speak these days. But the real question, when you were making Sex, Lies, and Videotape, did you have any idea that this was going to become the success that it did? Um, I knew I had the same reaction when I read that script 
to the script, that, the reaction that I had to this script, that I felt I was already prepared to play this character. Um, and I knew her really well. I knew who she was, even though I was not her. Um, and I, you know, people for a long time thought that was what I was like, but I'm really not like Anne at all. I was probably more like the sister. Uh, Laura <laughs> San Jacobo's but, character. Um, I was prepared. I was really ready to play it. And what was your question? I'm trying to remember what the hell you asked When me. you were making that <laughs> film, oh, it's been a long whether day. you sensed that this was going, oh, going to, to be successful, yeah. This like okay, more no. Than successful. At the time, at the time I did it, um, you know, it was only made for a million dollars. We were we weren't making any money, and we took a bus in the morning together. And I stayed at the Renaissance Hotel. Um, no, and it was very different. It was different, even though I thought it was fabulous. It was different, and um, I just thought I was going to have something to show, to show casting directors, which I was desperate. I really needed something, some material badly to show casting directors because I couldn't get a job, and I wanted to show them. I had been working really hard on my craft, and I wanted to show them what I was capable of. And so that's what I thought was going to happen, that I would have a reel to show to casting directors. And um, I was pregnant when I shot it, but just barely. And so I didn't get to go. Sadly, I was very protective of my pregnancy. I, I didn't even go to Sundance because I was pregnant. And then we won there. And then I didn't go to Cannes, sadly. I was, now, I, in hindsight, I think I should have. Um, I'm a different person now. At that time, I was nursing. I was um, kind of fat. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because it's not true because that's the way the world would have seen me. I was afraid of being criticized, which I am not like that anymore. I don't care if people criticize me. But at the time, I was oh, conscious of that. I was nursing. I, was, I wasn't fat. I was just, I just had a baby. And I wish I had gone. I'm sad that I didn't go. But the world can be very cruel. And I was at that time in my life, I wasn't prepared for cruelty. Now I don't care if the world's cruel to me. Well, I think <laughs> one I of really the care few anymore. good things about getting older <laughs> is sometimes we do get wiser and more mature and yeah. evolve. And yes. I think it's harder yeah. when you're young to take harsh, mean mean criticism, mean sure. people. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you needed to develop a body of work so that you would be respected as an actor, and you didn't yet have that. So, of course, one yes. is insecure. But it, that film also dealt with the fear of intimacy in a very honest way for mm -hmm. movies at the time. And I think that's one of the issues in the film that we just saw. But to shift gears, did you have any idea when you were making Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, directed by Harold Ramis, that that was going to become one of the sort of most popular, and I'm gonna, it, it's called a cult film these days mm -hmm. because even though it was a mainstream Hollywood movie, people watch it today over and over yeah. again. It's about it is. A, it it is, again. I would say it's a masterpiece. And it's, yeah. a, it's a funny movie, but I would say it's a masterpiece. And when I read it, it was perfect. So it was like a script, I was like, this is, good. this is going to be a hit. It read like a hit. But I didn't know that it would have the long-term effect on society that it had. I don't think anybody could have contemplated that yeah. that was going to happen. And uh, I, I had the great fortune a week <clears throat> ago of meeting Bill Murray. I walked up to him at the premiere of Isle of Dogs at the Metropolitan Museum, and I told him 
that tonight I would be interviewing Andy McDowell and we'd be showing a clip from Groundhog Day. And he said, oh, he just, he had this like suddenly warm, nostalgic memory. <laughs> and he said he loved the scene at the end of the film when he watches your character sleeping. And then he went on to tell me that Danny Rubin is the name I should be invoking because Harold Ramis as director and co-writer gets a lot of the credit. Mm -hmm. But when my husband Mark was telling him how much he loves the opening scene of Groundhog Day, where you actually watch Bill Murray doing this shadow play with his hands, because he's a weatherman mm -hmm. um, against a blue screen. And so Bill Murray said, Danny Rubin. He says, Danny Rubin was so brilliant in the way he conceived of the story. And it, it's not only a very entertaining movie, it's also very self-reflexive. I mean, you could almost read Groundhog Day as the story of an actor who knows that he's the only one who can sort of improvise and revolt um, and sort of manipulate things, but only within a very narrow frame. So the movie becomes rich on all kinds of levels, but you're the level-headed one mm -hmm. in that film as well. Um, and I, I, one similar question is with Four Weddings and a Funeral, which was also extraordinarily successful. I'm guessing that you knew beforehand that it was going to be because you did something very smart. You took points mm -hmm. in the film instead of more money up front. Well, they, did, they didn't offer me very much money. So I think my, my, my agent at the time was clever. It wasn't anything to do with my cleverness. I just wanted to do it because it was a great script. What happened was I was, ordered, I was offered Bad Girls and Four Weddings and a Funeral at the same time. Bad Girls offered me a lot of money and Four Weddings and a Funeral did not offer very much money at all. And I remember my business manager asking me, he was like asking me, why did I do four, why did you bother doing Four Weddings and a Funeral? Because he just had seen what I made with Bad Girls. And I said, because it's the best script I've ever read. And it's amazing. And I also was talking, Richard Curtis wrote to me the other day, I haven't heard from him in a while, and he wrote from me, to me the other day just saying how wonderful it is that we made this movie and that it went so well. And he, was, he wrote in there, he goes, when we did a, they did a, like a short little screening for us, and I forget, like six minutes or something. And he said, I just remember you laughing and nobody else laughing, but you were laughing. So I was thinking, maybe this works. But I was, I knew. I, and I don't like, usually like to watch myself. It makes me uncomfortable. Watch six minutes, it was brilliant. So brilliant. I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a huge hit. It was amazing. It was, the, it was uh, Rowan Atkinson that I was having delights with. That was where I was laughing so hard, the okay. holy spigot. So you have a, <laughs> at the very beginning of um, the film we just watched, your laugh is uh, quite resonant and wonderful. Um, I have to ask also about working with Robert Altman because we showed a clip from Shortcuts. That's a film that, talk about ambitious, 22 characters, if I remember correctly, nine storylines interweaving in this ensemble piece. And... Um, among the people coping with the fragility of joy and with betrayal and with boredom, you play a part that was very different from the others with which we had come to associate you, a grieving mother. And I know that Robert Altman, even more so than most filmmakers, relied upon improvisation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't really the script. It, mm -hmm. The script was a 
a point of departure, a blueprint, and then actors were encouraged to do something. I mean, could you tell us a little about how working with him was similar or different from Harburg or okay. Soderbergh? The thing that I noticed the most about Robert Altman's movies that um, I found fascinating was the way he used a crane and the way he incorporated different scenes. Um, he's the only director that I've ever worked with that did that. And he would start, like, and let you say, let's start, he's doing these people over here in the house, and then he would film them, and then he'd come down, and he'd do the pool, and then he'd come back up, and you pick it right up. Everything has to go just correct, and then you would find yourself over here. And in a lot of his movies, you have those long movie, long scenes where everything just ties together perfect, perfectly, and you go, how did, it's not just him, it's how did everybody get that right? And that, for me, was fascinating to watch, how he did that. I've never seen anybody else do that. And that's probably more challenging for an actor, because I remember on this stage we had the cast of Birdman a few years ago with mm -hmm. a preview, and that was another film where yeah, I love Emma movie. Stone was talking about how scary it was. Yes, it's terrifying. Because imagine take. if you mess up. Yeah, everybody. If you mess <laughs> up, you're the one. You know how? What? That's pressure. That's very, a lot of pressure. But you rose to the occasion. I right? did. I didn't mess up. Thank goodness. That's good. <laughs> um, and also, you know, as, before we move on to it, another thing. You've also worked with Peter Weir. I mean, mm, oh, I, I think lovely. he's one of the greatest living directors. And Norman Jewison with mm -hmm. Dinner with Friends. Vim Vendors. Mm -hmm. um, the End of Violence was such a fascinating mm -hmm. movie. It opened the Cannes Film Festival that year, a haunting mystery that weaves also, like Altman, weaving together mm -hmm. disparate mm -hmm. characters in Los Angeles with a Ry Cooter score. Albert Brooks's The Muse mm -hmm. and Nora Ephron's Michael. Um, mm -hmm. Susanna Styron with Shadrach. Are there particular directors, obviously Soderbergh would be one, mm -hmm. Russ Harbaugh, maybe Altman, um, that you feel understand best how to bring out the performance in you? Any particular director that you would single out? I keep trying to get Diane Keaton to direct again. I did Unstrung Heroes with her, and I think she got bad press for her second movie and kind of gave up, and I have been telling her over and over again, I really wish she would direct again. I, I guess she's busy, she's got a lot going on, she has kids, uh, but I think, I thought she was a great director and I would love to have seen her do more. Yeah, I thought I, Unstrung Heroes was I really beautiful. I regret that we did not have time to include a clip. This is a film in which Andy McDowell, this was 95, um, plays a real character, Selma Litz, based on Franz Litz's mother, with John Turturro as mm -hmm. your husband and you're playing a Jewish woman mm -hmm. in that film. And it was, I thought, really, again, complicated, well done, yeah. getting inside. and she's dying of cancer. And so it's a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, it's also a family, it's another kind of offbeat family. It's a really offbeat family. I really, I love offbeat families. But she has a beautiful eye. She was very much uh, a part of every detail of the making of that movie, more so than a lot of other directors I've worked with. Very much involved in the set, the colors, the wardrobe. Um, but I think because she is a woman and she wasn't, an, you know, an, she is an actress. She had her perspective was different. I thought she was a really great director. I would love to 
work with her. I worked with Angelica Houston I know, too, the, the, and that was fun. The that was a lot of fun. Um, riding the bus with <laughs> my sister. Riding the bus with my sister. Yeah, and that was that was a lot of fun too. So I'd love to work with Russ again. You know, I'm hoping he has more opportunities, um, or, or as a writer too because he writes such beautiful material. Well, the film is opening Friday at the IFC Center, and my guess is that it's going to get very, very strong reviews. I don't know what kind of box office. I hope it'll be thriving, but one never knows with some of the smaller independent films. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll have to see. Oh, dear. I have a lot more questions, but we took Andy McDowell away from the premiere of the film tonight. So um, I promised you could get back to the premiere party. We're gonna, we have like 10 minutes to take a few questions. If we could raise the light slightly, I see one down here right mm -hmm. away. I'll repeat the question, go ahead. Hi. Hi. So you've always been very natural in all your movies, the way you act, especially your facial expressions. Mm -hmm. You've always been very natural in your movies, especially your facial expressions. So for example, in this movie, Mm -hmm. Are you aware when, you, when they're doing a close-up of you that how your facial expression has to portray something differently than if you're acting with two or three people in the scene? Mm -hmm. So are you aware when there is, for example, a close-up <clears> of your <throat> face, uh, as with uh, sitting at the table with Emily and kind of n n not wanting to, sh well, but, but not really liking her, is there a difference when you have that close-up as opposed to when you're in a scene with two or three people mm -hmm. sharing the frame? Mm -hmm. um, for me, I find the for me the most interesting acting is when you don't have dialogue, um, because you have to communicate your feelings and tell a story without talking. Um, and so there's not like an on and off button. You don't like all of a sudden make a face. It's not like that. It's you're constantly feeling the feelings of this character. And those feelings, whatever you're feeling, are told on your face. So that's, that's what happens. But I do find I love, I love when I'm actually telling the story without talking. <laughs> yeah, and I've had a lot of people tell me that I do that well, so. I don't know. I guess it pays off liking doing it. So, <laughs> and, and yeah. it also seemed to me that there were quite a few long, uninterrupted takes in Love After Love. In other words, where the camera stays on the scene and moves through, as opposed to cut, 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 mm -hmm, which is the mm -hmm. more typical way that movie and TV show uh, and and TVs, TV shows present things. Were there more of the longer takes in this? He, there are a lot of takes that aren't in there. Oh. The, and a lot of takes were long, longer than there are in there. And Russ, having lost his father not that long ago, and this being his own personal story, um, had a lot of strong memories and ideas about how we should do it. There's a pace of like when I'm walking after he dies and I'm walking through the hallway and then Nick is over here being intimate and I'm peeking in the room and I'm walking slowly and then I just go sit down. That was really important to him because he felt like, he said that when his father died, it was as if everything went in slow motion. Hmm. So, and it felt really awkward to walk that slow. It didn't feel normal, but it looks great in the movie. Yeah. So I see he 
definitely knew what he was talking about. It looks fantastic. His mother was 54 when her husband died. Did you ever meet his mother? Did that have any sort of input? Later, but not, no, that wasn't, that wasn't really where I was drawing from. I think I was drawing from just a full life of experience of pain and loss and feeling sexy and feeling devastated and a vast amount of personal material that is not directly what this story is, but understanding human nature. Right. That, that comes through. Um, yes. What did you learn about yourself while making this movie? Um, something really interesting, uh, I think, that, you know, everything we were talking about the nudity, it was kind of nice to get that out of the way. <laughs> now everybody knows what I look like. I'm not worried about it anymore. You have, your expectations can be, you know, I'm a mature woman and that's it. So. What I learned is it's really not that painful because I was terrified about doing and doing that and you know showing the world my naked body, but hey, there it is. <laughs> so I don't know. It's not. It really wasn't a big deal. That's what I learned. I think it's harder to be in the room with your people that you're working with. That sort of intimacy when you're actually physically doing it, but seeing it on the big screen didn't bother me. I'm happy to do it again <laughs> under the right circumstances. And I'm sure it'll be easier because now I know it's really not a big deal. Um, one question that I, I feel obligated to ask because last year I saw a wonderful first feature called Novitiate. Mm -hmm. It's about young cloistered uh, women who want to become nuns. And the actress who starred in it, I didn't know the name, Margaret Qualley. Mm -hmm. And I jotted down in my notes while watching it, boy, she looks a lot like Andy McDowell. <laughs> and I came home and looked it up and I said, oh my goodness, that's Andy McDowell's daughter. <laughs> and also your younger daughter, I guess, Rainy, Rainy. had acted with you in a mm -hmm. movie called Mighty Fine, directed mm -hmm. by Debbie mm -hmm. Goodstein. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about your daughter, daughters, mm -hmm. going into this same profession as you? <clears throat> Well, um, I'm happy. I think it's a natural, it suits them very naturally. Rainey is also a singer-songwriter and has an amazing voice that was a gift. I don't know where it came from. And, um, and Margaret was a dancer, a very, um, she went to North Carolina School of the Arts in the 10th grade and had, you know, studied at really prestigious places like Chautauqua and in Seattle, she, she was two years, two summers in Chautauqua, and then she was at a ABT. She studied with Francois Perron. She was very, she was really hardcore from a young age, and pushing me to let her be a dancer, which is that was scarier. And um, she made this jump, this leap. She she found she she decided the summer that she was at ABT. I think she realized her body was falling apart. She was way too young for her body to fall apart. Her hips are not made to be forced like that. And um, she took an acting class and she found uh, two modeling agencies that she could go to and wrote me a letter and said, I want to move to New York. So she moved to New York in the 11th grade. <laughs> no. Wow. It's insane. It's insane that I lit her. But I know my child really well and I organized for someone to live with her and she, she had found the school herself, the professional children's school. She went there. 
And then after that year, she was so tired, exhausted, and she missed her sister, and she said, let's move to New York. So then we moved to New York. And so I, you know, I, I've been trying to keep up with them, you know. And Rainey has been off doing her thing, and she's you know, extremely creative and creating this. She does everything on her own. The music, I don't know anything about music. But Margaret took this acting class in New York in the 11th grade, and she was like, okay, this is it. This is it. Because she had a, a huge void leaving dance. It was a huge, painful void. She's still dancing, though. She was in that Kenzo commercial. Did you see that Kenzo commercial? Mm -hmm. You know, the one that Taylor copied and everybody was talking about Taylor? Well, anyway, go watch it. It's pretty fabulous. I'm too busy <laughs> watching. And she's still Eddie's. dancing. <laughs> they both dance. They both dance. You'll see it. It was, okay. it's, it's, um, Spike, hey, what's the director of the Kenzo commercial? Spike. Lee? Jones. Oh, Spike yeah, Jones. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Spike Jones directed it. It's a big deal. Okay, I, I, I can tell. <laughs> but when you say you wonder where your daughter got the singing thing, I thought you were pretty good I'm in Michael singing. You have to hear her by the side of the road. It's a different, it's a different story. But did, had you ever done any singing before you did that in Michael? Um, n not really. My mother was a music major, so I'm, I was used to being around music. But I would not consider myself a strong singer. I can pull, I can pull off a tune, but that's about it. Especially like, I love pie. <laughs> um, that worked really well in, in the context of the film. Um, uh, actually, uh, okay, one last question. Go ahead. Um, so you said that you fell in love with Russ Harbaugh's script. Uh, yes. You said you fell in love with Russ Harbaugh's script. Did that script have the same elliptical qualities that we feel in watching the film? You know, when I read the script, it made perfect sense to me. It was, I got it immediately. And somebody that I was working with, uh, um, I worked on the scene, particularly with the young girl. I wanted to be really prepared, so I worked with a coach. I don't think she really got it as deeply as I did until... Um, she saw me doing it, and then she was like, oh, okay, now I get why you really like, why you really like this. It wasn't like a normal script. It, it wasn't. It was, it, I think it took a certain kind of creative intelligence to grasp what it was. And I think the movie is a little bit like that, but it's very European in, in that feeling. Um, I think it's a smart movie. I think you have to have an open mind to trying something different, particularly with present movies, because I think movies have become so homogenized and there's almost a dumbing down to it. God, I hate to say that, but I do feel it, so I guess that's all right. I don't know. But it's not that. It is a different kind of movie. Whether people can appreciate it in the theater or not, we'll see, because I think people have gotten so accustomed to... Um, a different, explosive, very um, clear approach to film. It's very European, so I'm hoping people will go see it, but I guess we'll find out. No, no, me too. <laughs> I mean, it's, look, it's rare still for even independent films to focus on mature females as well as juvenile adult males. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things that this film does. I don't like the male characters, the, the, the sons in this film. I don't like them, but that 
doesn't mean that I can't appreciate the dynamics, mm -hmm. but it certainly, at the end of the day, makes me feel so much respect for both Suzanne, the character, and the actress, Andy McDowell, who plays her, because it's Suzanne who anchors the film in terms of the heart. It's, it's Suzanne who experiences the most and with whom we end up, I think, identifying whether we are male or female. But we have to let you get back to the premiere. Mm -hmm. I, the film opens Friday Thank at the Thank you so much Center. for coming. Thank I really you. appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. Thank you.